Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Peter Frampton for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Hello, everyone. I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there, and it is the People's Podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite everyone to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the words John McAdam and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. I'm really good at sharing other people's tweets. A lot of retweets going out for me. You want to join up. If you haven't already, sign up for our Facebook page. If you like the podcast, you love the Facebook page. This episode will be an example of why you need to join the Facebook page because we're doing a mailbag podcast, an episode. Thank you. These words are so hard. With that, I want to bring on my guest who's going to help me tackle those questions. And I want to tell the story about the first time he was on. My guest at the last minute popped out on me. Couldn't do the show as a legitimate reason. So I get on Facebook. I'm like, all right, first cool, knowledgeable guy who I see posting, who I see is active. So if I can, so if I ask him, hey, can you be on in an hour? He can give me a yes or no. I see Vincent Waller's name an hour later. He and I popped out a great podcast and he's back this week. Welcome, Vincent. Thanks for having me back. Very excited to be here. I'm I'm excited to have you. You were really good last time. As the guest, I would like to invite you. We took questions on the Facebook page. Vincent, what's the first question you would like to discuss? Somebody asked a question about Iron Sheik broke Hogan's leg, who would be the next in line to challenge or take the title? Yeah, there I was... I don't actually have the name up. There was a rumor out there that the NWA promoters were going to entice uh, monetarily the Iron Sheik to not lose the title, to instead go out and break Hulk Hogan's leg, which I think is... I, I don't think that actually happened. Could Sheik have done it? Probably, but... Go ahead, Vincent. What would you like to share? John, did you say NWA? Because the story is AWA, right? Vern Gagne himself. You know what? Both both stories are out there. I could see Vern. Oh, I've never heard the NWA version of that. You know what? I had heard both. So I just have to say, I love this question so much. Do you ever have a joke where the setup is the punchline? (laughs) Like you don't even get to the punchline because the premise is just so much fun. And yes. I don't mean that to like look my nose down at the qu- by any means. No, I I, I love the question. I, I I've uh, posed something on on one of the boards that you frequent or one of our our the, the what the Facebook pages uh, to the effect of if you were to take a you had a big budget Hollywood movie budget to make a Hollywood movie, and you had to pick one pro wrestling storyline, and treat it dead serious as if wrestling was a shoot, and, and that that was going to be the movie, and I think one of the the favorite ones that was mentioned uh, was Macho Man uh, versus Hogan, WrestleMania four to WrestleMania five and the breakup of the mega powers, which is a whole nother subject. But this one's right up there for me. I mean, think about how, how much was at stake, right? This was 1984. Mm-hmm. Hulkamania was about to run wild and it all depended on iron cheek, you know, playing ball. So the absurdity here, first of all, is let's say this happens, right? And he, 
the the question was who's the next person he's going to defend the title against in the WWF. So I mean, like the the fact that he would stay right and Vince McMahon would be like, "All right, this is what we're doing." <laughs> um, you know, but at the same time, it's like I can un- sort of understand it because like there's you can make an argument, right? Kayfabe still existed. And what's Vince McMahon going to do? This just happened in Madison Square Garden, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be hard to keep this under wraps. It's not Rio de Janeiro, right? Right. <laughs> so this, this, this happened, but now uh, I've got to get the belt off of him. And, you know, I don't know that he can just pretend like it didn't happen. So who are you going to send in? Let, let, let's suppose, before I get to that, the other thing I want to mention is, like, the fact that Sheik would have broke his leg. You know... Iron Sheik was a Greco-Roman wrestler, right? I mean, like, he's a legit badass, has skills, but Greco-Roman is waist up, isn't it? Yeah. And do you ever see, you know, Iron Sheik do a scorpion deathlock or any any kind of leg hold? I mean, he didn't have the, the Ken Shamrock uh, leg-breaking arsenal in his, you know, in his repertoire. You know what, though? Um, if, if I yeah. were in the ring, I'm 55 years old, I've never wrestled, if you were trusting me, I could break your leg because I could just cheap shot you. I could just like, you know, if you're laying on your back, I could just come down with, with all my weight on one of your knees and I could mess you up. You could do the same thing. But if you're, if you're Vern and you're, I mean, that's like uh, paying off Mike Tyson to hurt somebody and say, kick him, kick him in the shin, Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, point. that's just not, I, I am chic. That was not the, the top end of his skill set. The other aspect of this is obviously Hogan wouldn't have been a pushover, you know, big, strong dude, 300 plus pounds, probably legit, you know, six, six, five legit, at least, right. Maybe six, 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 seven. Yeah. They tend to exaggerate the wrestling, but he was a huge dude. Absolutely. He was a huge dude. He wasn't six, eight, but six, six is, is impressive. Yeah. A, a, legit, a legit six, six, you know, barefoot and. You know, in a real fight, it's not just skill that wins the day. It's athleticism and will to win. And, and Hulk Hogan, to, to some sense, he really did have an eye of the tiger. He was aggressive at life. He was aggressive at wrestling in terms of the business, right? And and if nothing else, if, if just to protect his brand, I think he would have <laughs> he would have put up a hell of a fight. You know, he had you had um the story of Vern Gagne leg leg diving him, and Hogan got the better of Vern. Yeah, it was an older Vern, but you know, but that just goes to show like size and strength are a big factor, right? Sure the story about him scrapping with Dr. D David Schultz and not kicking the crap out of him, but, but kind of neutralizing him and holding him and getting the, be- getting the better of him. So Hulk wasn't a complete pushover. Now that said, I think iron Sheik kicks the crap out of him. Uh, you know, Sheik was actually still very spry. I mean, I think a lot of people look back at him as like a cartoon character now, just because of all the, the crazy shoot interview. And he always, he was a colorful character back in the day, but I mean, he had high level wrestling skills. He wasn't an Olympic champion, but he was a Olympic level of athlete and he was an AAU gold medalist. And actually, if you look at him in the ring, I mean, he was, he was getting up there in years at that time. He was in his early forties, but he was still spry. It's not like in the late eighties, you know, he had that bad ankle and he kind of was starting to hobble around and be a little bit less mobile, less quick. But I've, I've seen some situations that kind of told me the guy was tough as nails. Like, you know, that you remember the time Andre tossed Kim Chi onto, uh, onto his head? Yeah. I mean, that would have killed a man. That would have killed a lesser man, right? You're throwing a 250-pound uh, wrestler, which I think was probably Steve Lombardi, who was not a, not a skimpy guy, onto your head. And, you know, she, she kind of shrugged it off. 
So I kind of see that fight going, well, there's another situation where he kind of awkwardly landed in the ropes. You know, I think it was a late seventies match, but the fact that he just popped up, gets into the ring. I mean, the guy, I, I don't think he'd be a pushover by any means. Uh, he seemed to have held himself together. So then getting to the question and looking at the 1984 roster, I, I can think of a couple of names off the top of my head. First one that comes to mind, Meng, Meng was there, right? Wasn't he there as uh, King Tonga at the time? No, he came in, or I want to say like spring or summer 1985. Okay, Scrap Meng. <laughs> Jack Briscoe. Uh, I mean, Briscoe. You know, I mean, little, really, they had a I mean, Briscoe was about Briscoe. to be there. Okay. You, well, you've got Bob Backlund right there. No, the question I specifically recall said we can't, we can't consider Backlund. Oh, okay. I did not. I did not remember that. I mean, what would, the Briscoe brothers would be there not in not too long. I know Jack was getting on in years, but actually, if you look it up, he's only he was only one year older than the Iron Sheik. Wow, that, you know what? That surprises me that Sheik was that old. I haven't actually considered how how old he was at that point. But I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of. I mean, I get what you're saying. Like the question, the premise of the question is kind of, you know, crazy. First of all, you have to have <laughs> Iron Sheik agreeing to do this, which I don't think would ever, ever happen. Number two, now you have to leave the belt on the Iron Sheik and figure out something to do. Well, one thing, it's like, all right, Iron Sheik, you you, you got your $100,000. <laughs> Here's another $100,000 waiting yeah, for you. you. Yeah, if you just do a job to someone else. What happens in real life, if this happens, is, you know, Vince says, okay, cause nice knowing you. And you just yeah. put the belt on Jimmy Snuka and say, you know, in Rio de Janeiro, Jimmy Snuka beat him. But that's why I like the premise of the question. We're, we're assuming uh, that, you know, this we're going to go out there on a limb and say there's going to be this situation where he has to just face the next challenger in the WWF. And, and you just think that they'd get some kind of policeman on him. I mean, that's the classic scenario, isn't it? In pro wrestling, just that's why you have the policeman guy. Just in right. Case. And that's, you I mean, know, that, I, isn't that the story? Bearcat, right? doing the same thing to Freddie Blassie, and then they sent him uh, Gene LaBelle. Gene LaBelle, Judo Gene. Yeah. I, so, I mean, I anytime you talk about a double cross, it, it's just, it's you know, it, it becomes stuff of lore, it becomes stuff of legend. You know, Ricky Dozon, Akira, Akira Maeda, and I don't mean Durst's, I mean, obviously, Ricky, Ricky Dozon was, it was against Kimura, and Maeda was against Andre, and you have the stories from the, you know, back in the days of Frank Gotch and, you know, so it's just, it's, it's interesting stuff. I could talk about it all day. I'll throw a couple more names out. Wasn't Adrian, Adrian Adonis there at that time? He was, uh, he, he was about to be back. I want to say he was back like February or March, 1984. And that's a good pick. But you suffer, you suffer the guy a month, you know, and you send him in against Adrian. I, I don't think that, uh, I, Iron Sheik's skills necessarily would lend themselves to a guy that was handy with his fist. And even though Adrian got, you know, he got his butt handed to him in that uh, classic uh, backstage confrontation uh, against one of the skyscrapers, whose name escapes me. Oh, Dan Spivey. Dan Spivey. Adrian could, you know, he must have been able to handle himself, right? He would do those fan challenges back in like Houston, wasn't it? Uh, Amarillo. And yeah, that was a real thing. He would have fans get in the ring like these big construction workers and Adonis would just rub their faces in the mat. Well, the story that I think it was Roddy Piper or somebody recounting and who knows how accurate this is. He'd, he'd say sometimes he'd let him take the first swing and he'd kind of put his hands down and lean himself back into the ropes, like, you know, kind of lull him to a false sense of security or make him think that he, he's just going to tie up and then just crack the hell out of him. I heard a similar story from Dick Murdoch. 
I was going to say when Dick oh. Murdoch was still alive, but that, that goes without saying. <laughs> Although you have to consider as well, like, who can, are you going to send in another heel? Or do you have to find a face with some legit skills? I would say, you know what, you put in, no matter what, in this scenario, you put him in the, the next TV tapings in Allentown or Hamburg, you put him in with the best guy that you have, which, you know what, make the call to Adrian Adonis. I can't think of anyone connected to the WWF who would be a better, a, a better tree. You know who might be an interesting choice? And he was with them at the time. And this is going to be like so out of thin air. <laughs> I love it. Barry Horowitz slash Jack Hart. Really? That guy was supposed to, I mean, he was a legit wrestling ch- uh, state champion in Florida. He was young. He was in good shape. I, I mean, I've heard the Barry Horowitz stories. Like, you know, what a tough guy he was. Hey, I love that idea because also, what do you stand to lose if Barry Horowitz ends up getting curb stomped by the Iron Sheik? <laughs> he was supposed to get curb stomped by the Iron Sheik, right? So He's been curb stomped on TV for the last two and a half years, and wait, there's more. <laughs> now you've got Iron Sheik out there getting stretched out by a jobber. Yeah, and and actually, I mean, who was Bob Backlund before the WWF? brought him in or WWWF, right? I mean, like some of this is just conditioning the fans to say, this is going to be our next guy and you're going to like him because we tell you to. Uh, I mean, back when was over enough, I mean, we talked about on the show where we had the guest who was there. John Jantz was there when Backlund won the title from superstar Billy Graham. You know, he, he was over enough. I mean, it wasn't, and they did a good job building him up too. And he, he had held the Missouri title before that. He was a big star in Florida. Backlund's trajection did not look odd to me at the time. It, he, it never felt like Bob was being forced on us. But it's not like a Dusty Rhodes or some somebody that's already established themselves in another territory, and they, you bring them in, and they were a, a somewhat big name somewhere else. Yeah, um, it was almost like Backlund when he was, like, let's say, right before they brought him in, the year 1976, he looked like a rising star, and WWF is where he became a star. But like, like I said, to me at the time, it didn't look weird or forced. So my last suggestion of a wrestler before we get to the next one is Junkyard Dog. And here's why. <laughs> Iron Sheik liked Junkyard Dog. You know, you just you, you, you give him some medicine and some of the A to the Z before the, <laughs> before the event. Send him out there and, and tell him you're going to do the job against JYD. And I think he'd, he'd, he would play ball. Maybe. I mean, then again, if, he, if you know, I, don't, <laughs> I mean, you're right. Maybe he would do it. And if you're Vince, like, no, it's okay. You'll have a job after this. You know, I'm not mad at you or anything. We talk him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we I mean, talk him and, 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 and hey, it's, it's your friend. I'm sending you in there against your friend. <laughs> it might have worked, even though JYD wasn't with the WWF at the time. JYD had the it factor. If you were to bring him up, he'd get over. Uh, Iron Sheik was a crazy character. I have a crazy Iron Sheik story, which I can't even share on the show because it's so crazy. I'll tell it to you afterward, Vince. All right. I, love uh, I just love the guy's a legend. He's awesome. Love him. Yeah. He, you know, we've talked about him on the show before. I mean, I remember the match you talked about when in 79, when he went out of the ring and practically landed on his head against Ted DiBiase. I mean, he was good. That's all I was going to say. It was, it was Ted. D- yeah. That was a nasty bump. Yeah, he landed like right on his head and it looked like he did it on purpose. All right. And one of the things I, I, I love doing these shows because we're always talking about something that at least one person definitely wants to hear about. We get so many good questions that I'm not just saying that to say it like we're just not going to get to all of them. I apologize for that, but we'll do one of these like once every month. Sean Olmstead 
ask today's what if question. What if after winning the WWF title, Andre does not sell to Ted DiBiase? The meaning does not sell the title. Does he have one more match with Hogan at WrestleMania 4, or does he feud with TBiase leading to WrestleMania 4 instead? I just want to say we are recording this February 6th, 2021, and 33 years ago today, I went to the Boston Garden the day after Ted DiBiase or Andre the Giant won the title on Saturday night's main event or the Friday night main event and quickly gave it to Ted DiBiase. And it was pretty cool seeing that the next day, Ted DiBiase parading around the Boston Garden with the WWF championship belt. But Vincent, what do you think about this? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, first of all, you know, it, it's sad to me that DiBiase even gets to keep the belt. He's not. It's questionable if he's an official WWE champion in the lineage. He was a great wrestler himself. It's also kind of sad that, you know, I, I know people always say it's sad that so-and-so didn't hold the belt. Everyone, you know, should have gotten a run. And then but that's precisely why the belt is as special as it is, right? Yes. But um, I like the scenario. My question is, how do you tweak the storyline? Are you still going to keep the two refs and the bribing? And then, you know, what's in it for Ted DiBiase? He's just <laughs> looking to advance Andre's career and make himself a glorified wrestler manager. How do you do it without turning Andre face, right? If Andre is just, <laughs> yeah, I took your money, but I'm keeping your belt too. Now you, you have a face Andre and you don't have a reason for him to face off against Hogan. So I think you'd have to tweak the story. There's a way to do it. I suppose, uh, you know, I really like the chemistry between, um, uh, Andre and the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. It, it was just uh, very cool. Uh, although Andre with any, with the, with the broomstick makes a great tag team. <laughs> uh, you know, he was such a force of nature. Yeah. I guess we, we had, we can't beat around the obvious of, you know, Andre was advanced in years and, and was slowing down. So, I mean, how much could you do and you know, how much of a schedule could he wrestle as a, a champion? And if you're doing this and how long was this before the, what was a WrestleMania four? Yeah. Um, it was about a little less than two months before the WrestleMania. Okay. Well, it can work then. Right. Cause you can just protect the hell out of, out of Andre have him make you know some tv appearances but not really wrestle right he didn't need to wrestle i think it would sell huge i mean wrestlemania 3 sold huge um i thought andre still looked strong in wrestlemania andre it was incredible because even you know he was suffering and in pain but as a mark at the time watching it just through kayfabe eyes i had no idea whatsoever i just you know all that stuff to me made him seem more formidable you know the fact that he was never tanned, <laughs> you know, he looked almost like a corpse, but it made him look like a, like an ancient, you know, uh, just megalithic creature, you know, yes. uh, the, the huge head, the tiny teeth in his mouth, the deep voice. Yeah. And actually, you know, when I, I, I remember years, years after the fact, this was like late nineties watching earlier, like videos of Andre and thinking at the time that Andre actually looked worse than he looked at WrestleMania three, because. I wasn't looking at the fact that he was more mobile and spry and physically able. It's just, he had this big old gut. Yeah. <laughs> he had this huge beer gut. And at least when, with the back brace, I couldn't tell he was wearing a back. It actually worked as kind of a girdle, you know, which no, that, that's sounds actually terrible now. Sounds I mean, he terrible looked so now, bad but, in 85 and 86 yeah. because he was so overweight and that kind of hit it. And you think the the back surgery kind of alleviated, I mean, when I look back at the time, he, he was, he was decent. I mean, he, he had a couple of, I think he had a match with Macho Man around the time. And of course it was like a Saturday night event. It was very, you know, he was very well protected. 
they had a lot of, you know, interference and stuff to just keep his interaction limited, but he didn't need to do a lot. The fans were conditioned to just be like, this is Andre and his two mile per hour punch, you know, is, it feels like, you know, getting hit by a bus going two miles per hour. So just, you know, don't think that just because it looks slow, it's, it's not, uh, you know, he's not doing massive damage. No, he, I mean, a lot of people make a lot out of the fact that he wasn't really seven, five, but I mean, he really was six ten, six eleven, and he took up a lot of space. I mean, you, you believe that Andre, the giant was, was a dangerous man and in real life, supposedly he was very dangerous. If you got him riled up. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine if, you, if he gets a hold of you, it's, it's going to be a problem, you know? And I think Bill Watts said it best, best in his book, uh, we talked to, he, he happened to, you know, Bill Watts talked about everyone's toughness, right? Since he was the toughest guy ever, but uh, <laughs> he said, <laughs> he said something like, you know, Andre wasn't a trained shooter, but you know, at his size, you know, seven, seven feet, 500 pounds, you weren't going to just walk up to him and kick his ass either. No, absolutely not. I think they booked it perfectly. I thought the, the twin referees angle, you know, how much was, was the plastic surgery? I thought that was <laughs> phenomenal. And it was something, you know, I know a lot of wrestling traditionalists didn't like it, but I'd been a wrestling fan all my life and I loved it. However, if I'm the booker and Vince McMahon says to me, look, you have to book an angle where Andre wins the title and then refuses to give it up. Well, I don't do the twin referees thing. I do some other kind of screw job. And I just have Andre look at the belt, look at Ted DiBiase, look at the belt and just all my life I've worked for this. I'm not giving it up. And we get a big baby face pop. You could have Andre as kind of in the middle of a baby face turn. Wrestle Hogan at WrestleMania four. Hogan regains the title. Andre shakes his hand. And then you have Ted DiBiase pay off Bam Bam Bigelow to go after Andre the Giant. So there's your next feud. But I wouldn't have done that. I would have done exactly what they did. Plus, you had a summer of Andre the Giant challenging Randy Savage for the title. Then you get that big SummerSlam main event. So I think they did it right. I agree with you, but that would require a shift in the dichotomy of WWF, which they wouldn't have been willing to do at the time because they were still black and white with faces versus heels. So yep. they'd, they'd be too afraid you can't have a tweener Andre. Like, you know, the tweener just wasn't a thing that they had. Yeah. But also, <laughs> but also imagine... Um, Imagine the pitch in that room, right? I, I can't believe they pulled it off as well as they did. You know, we're going to have twin referee allegations of plastic surgery, paying off the ref like that. It's a very ambitious angle to, and, and, and look at, you know, they pulled it off great. And that's what the highest rated thing of all time on TV and on TV and, and uh, NBC was yeah. like a 12.5 or something crazy that you'll never get again. Uh, I, it got like, I want to say it got like an eight something. I'm not positive, but that's still uh, for a Friday night. That's a really impressive rating. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it, it got over huge. It, it worked out great. And, you know, and also very few people knew what was happening. My understanding is Vince and Patterson didn't let Andre or Hogan know until the night of the, of the show. Like, I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, who knows? I mean, seems like Vince McMahon will never do a shoot interview, and if he does, who would trust what he says? Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> Vince has been working this for so long, but hey, he's the guy who made it all work. All right, what's the next question you'd like to talk about? Anything you you want to talk about? What about um, change the finish to one supercard? Change the finish to one supercard. What would you do? 
Booker T, Triple H, WrestleMania 19. Okay. Why do you think I might suggest that? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. This was during like a five-year period where I was not watching WWE. Well, let me tell you why you weren't. Because <laughs> Triple <laughs> H was just stinking it up. And I don't mean to come off like a, like a Triple H hater. I mean, the guy obviously respects the business, has learned the business, has married the business. <laughs> you know, hardworking guy. You know, he seems to be doing really good things with NXT. But, you know, he put himself in this position where every Monday Night Raw, he was going off on this, like, 20-minute spiel and then, you know, thinks that makes him a great heel. Like, any, you know, that, that, that just changed the channel heat. Obviously, you change the channel. I change the channel as well <laughs> a lot of the time. But, you know, kind of kept a toe in the water of, of what was going on. But this was the situation where, you know, basically they, 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 they ran a, very it's not even strongly implied or dog whistle it was like it was a race angle you know and he had this uh famous promo that he gives talking to booker t saying you know people like you don't get to hold this belt which you know historically in pro wrestling has been true right but like yeah if you're going to come out and say that and, and you're the heel that just and not even a he's, he wasn't even a, a cowardly heel or a chicken shit heel like they kind of booked him as you know, a monster heel, but I don't buy the guy's a monster heel. <laughs> you know, like he's not, he doesn't have, he's not that, you know, the, I'm sure that the iron sheik in his prime would break his back and make him humble. <laughs> um, so it just, it, I couldn't buy, and, and I'm, I'm, I, I love monster. I love, I love having a diversity of heels. Don't get me wrong, but it was just for years and years and years, the WWF or the Northeast territory or the WWF or capital wrestling, or WWE, you know, it was built around around strong faces, right? Like you, you had Bruno, and you'd have your transitional heel, and then you'd have Pedro, right? Even superstar Billy Graham was starting starting to become a face. Like you know, they they, they want to go home happy. That's just what the, you know the territory was built to expect. And now suddenly you're going to have this guy who just you hate him because he's boring. <laughs> you know, he drones on. He's got everything going for him. It looks like the promotion is just trying to shove him down your throat. And then that by itself, now combine that with just outright racism, you know, like without getting into politics or anything, it just doesn't seem like, you know, Vince McMahon's had the best record on that historically. Right. Um, And and he had a couple of, yeah. So, so this is all set up. At least if you're going to do a race angle, this recent, you're going to put the black guy over. Right. (laughs) But, Instead, uh, guess who won? Well, Nashville, New Hampshire's own Triple H. That's right. And not just one, but one pretty much clean and fair and square and, uh, like, you know, finished him with, I think, I forgot whatever, I think it's just his normal flapjack kind of finisher and did this long thing where they're both laying there kind of halfway knocked out. He crawls over and he gets the one, two, three and just buries them. And it doesn't even look, you know, like no one's going to just respect you for that and think that, yeah, you you kick Booker T's butt. It just comes off as just, you know, horrible from every single angle. Like if, if you were to, and, and Booker T was, you know, a deserving champion. Booker T had tremendous skills. He was a, you know, through all the muck of WCW the night that he won that, uh, that belt, even with all the crappy Russo nonsense. I popped for that moment just because, you know, Booker T had night in and night out work his butt off and um 
I know he gets knocked for having a little bit of floatiness in his moves. They don't seem to have as much high impact as they could if you want to be super technical about it. But I mean, how many heavyweights could do the, you know, the Harlem hangover, the, you know, jumping off the top rope, you know, missile drop kick around that time, especially. I mean, I remember I was watching something from WCW, like when he first got there and he just, you know, they were doing a rope spot and he just casually jumped right over this guy without even thinking about it. I mean, he had incredible athleticism. I've always, always been a fan of Booker T couple of things about Triple H. I stopped watching or I took a break from watching right around like after WrestleMania 2002. And this is when Chris Jericho held the WWE title and they booked him to fail with the WWE title and to make the other guy with long blonde hair look like a goof. And I was on an email thread back to when those were a thing. And someone's like, oh, you know, they gave Chris Jericho a chance with the title. He didn't succeed. What's the problem? Well, you know, they they put him in an angle where he's babysitting Stephanie McMahon's dog. And I'm like, you know, and I say on this email exchange, they, they know what they're doing. They put the title on him. Then they book him to fail so they can write him off. And Dave Meltzer, who was part of this, says, yep, McAdam knows what he's talking about. Because I've been yeah, in the and WWF the doesn't business. have uh, WWE doesn't have, not have a monopoly on on that you know cutting off your nose to spite your face. You just mentioned it earlier, right? Oh, well, actually, now I'm going off the record. <laughs> You're talking about Fritz earlier, and in, in our pre pre talk, which could have been a, <laughs> a good a good chat for for the show, having a rival that he was trying to ice out of the business, mm-hmm. right? And when if you just you know, oftentimes people see things as a zero sum game, and they're really not. God forbid Chris Jericho gets over. Yeah, they, they want it. You know, he's, he's a valuable piece in their puzzle and they went out of their way to muzzle him so that, you know, for the sake of triple H, this happens. They went out of their way uh, in 2001 when Rob Van Dam was red hot. Well, they made sure the right guy didn't get the right angle to get over. And the fans wanted to get behind Rob Van Dam. Yeah. I mean, they were, (laughs) they were behind him, you know, and, 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 it just, it's such a way of thumbing your nose at the fans. And how long can you do that for before you just kind of, you know, burn a bridge with a lot of your demographic? Yeah. I mean, the WWE, I, I get how some of their, they were still WWF at the time, how a lot of their roster had been conditioned to, hey, WCW guys are the enemy. They're trying to take my job. They're trying to put this company that I work for out of business. Well, that's gone now. And you got to be an adult and get over it. And if RVD comes in and the fans take to him, that's the guy you got to push. But, you know, the, the locker room was opposed to it. But anyway, if I had to book a main event differently, uh, a super show differently, I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight here. But 1988, the first Clash of the Champions special, I would have put Sting over Flair and taken my chances with this hot young baby face who's about to get hotter. And we don't know this in March 1988. And take our chances with him as opposed to keep going downhill with Flair as champion. And no, none of it was Ric Flair's fault, but I would have done that differently. And Sting was never the same, right? It wasn't that before Sting broke his leg? Uh, no, this was Sting suffered the knee injury uh, February 1990. So this was a couple of years before. Oh, okay. But I mean, Sting just had this momentum where the fans were so behind. I mean, he, he seemed the guy like a guy that was genuinely enthusiastic about pro wrestling and you can only, you know, take that guy down the notch so many times. And Crow Sting never did it for me quite as much as Sting Sting. 
No, same here. I mean, and I, I actually get that he had to, he couldn't get stuck with that gimmick forever. But at the same time, you know, Crow Sting, like, like you said, it just didn't do it for me either. Well, there's something about Crow Sting that it, it went in with this whole kind of goth kind of thing that is inherently depressing. So, you know, people that like feeling depressed and bad about themselves will get behind you. And we have a lot of those, <laughs> but, and, and the old Sting fans will get behind him as well. But there was, there was just like a enthusiastic energy about surface Sting. Yeah, I remember when Sting finally started growing his hair out. He went with like a darker hair look. I was like, good for him because he can't, you know, he would have fallen into the same pit as the Road Warriors. Like, okay, it's 1998 and we've got these 80s guys out here and it wasn't cool. Hey, John, for the next question, can we do other faces that could have replaced Hulk from 84 to 87? Yeah, sure. Uh, I don't think there was one, but who would you have gone with? It's just always a fun topic. I mean, I, and, I, and I mentioned him earlier, but I'm going to, I'm going to say junkyard dog. Um, he, I don't think he would be my top three, but who would be your other two guys? He, I mean, JYD was over as hell. And, uh, I know he had his demons, but he lasted there as long as he lasted anyway. Right. I mean, he lasted about 88. Um, yeah. but the other guys that come to mind, uh, Roddy Piper, um, Good point. you know, he was over huge, uh, you know, as a heel, Fans wanted to cheer him. They were cheering him anyway during this period. I mean, he did turn face, what, around 86? Right after, like, very early fall, 86, yeah. Yeah, never got to hold the big belt. Definitely deserved it. I mean, he's definite icon of the business. One of the, you know, Mount Rushmore of greatest promos of all time. Uh, I agree. Paul Orndorff. I'm going to say Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff is another really one. good. Yeah, just as an anti-hero babyface, you could have been Stone Cold before Stone Cold. Not, I mean, the real Stone Cold before Stone Cold is obviously David Schultz, but I'm saying if you're going to have a guy that is just, and I don't think he's a natural, I mean, he's a great heel, but Jake Roberts made this great point one time where he's, you know, he, he believes that the cowardly heel is the only way to go. Cause if you don't cheat, he said something like, you know, then, then you're just a badass. Like, well, why am I going to, why am I going to boo a badass? Now I disagree with Jake about that, but I think he's got a point in a sense, but there's nuance there. I, you know, I think Vader works as a monster heel. I think, you know, Tom Brady works as a monster heel, right? Oh. Switching at the risk of not sticking to, sticking to wrestling going into the Super Bowl. I mean, just, you know, the guy's, you know, pretty boy, wins all the time, like has a great life, married to a, uh, you know, a swimwear model. He's not a cowardly heel. He's not actually like bad at football, but, but you, you still kind of hate him. Maybe you don't, but uh, I don't. <laughs> I shouldn't. But you know what I mean? Like, you've, you've got those guys, maybe, you know, Shaquille O'Neal back in the day, right? Like, well, he's not very skilled. He's just tough because he's so big and strong and good at what he does. But he's still, a lot of people wouldn't like him at the time if he's beating your favorite team. So I think there is a, such a thing as a monster heel. But when it comes to Jake has a point that if the guy is just a badass, like, yeah, the fans are going to get behind him. And Paul Orndorff is a natural badass. You know, well, one quick thing. I, I I always loved Shaq. I loved have even having broken old, broken down old Shaq as a Celtic late in his career. I thought was really cool. Orndorff was a really good babyface in Georgia and Mid South. He came across. I've said this on the show before, but he came across as a legit badass babyface athlete. So he would be under consideration. But my three guys: number one would be Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, I was going to mention Jim Duggan. <laughs> okay, uh, he would I be my number one if if you couldn't get Hogan, and and none of these guys would be as effective as Hogan. Number two would be Kerry Von Erich for obvious reasons, 
Number oh, yeah. three, and I have said this before, if I'm running the NWA in 1985 and I'm like, okay, who's the guy to bring in that I can say, okay, this guy's better than Hogan. And that would be the recently deceased Butch Reed. Uh, we're recording this, oh, as yeah. I said, February 6th. Yesterday, we learned of Butch Reed's passing. Very sad occasion. And if I'm the NWA, I'm like, look, you think Hulk Hogan, you know, make Butch Reed your champion and say, okay, you think Hulk Hogan can take this guy on in a fight? Let's find out. Butch Reed was such a scary dude. Like, just the energy he had, and it came across in his promos. And, you know, no, he didn't seem, maybe I, maybe I missed it, but he didn't seem like he had the promo range like Flair. He could do just a calm promo, and then he could do the screaming his head off. You know, Butch Reed tended to do the screaming his head off, but I believe that dude. <laughs> that was yeah. a scary guy. I, when I saw him in first time I saw him in Georgia, 1981, I'm like, this guy is huge and he's a great athlete. And I think he could have had a better career, but he had a great career and, and Butch Reed will be missed. All right, let's go to Brian Crawley has a really Before good we question. Do, can I, can I, can I, can I throw out another name for the other faces that could have replaced? Oh, yeah, this sure. is a, a Hail Mary long shot. You're going to maybe mock me, but Rocky Soulman Johnson. <laughs> Rocky, I'll tell you something. Rocky was over out here. I mean, I was here, you know, he got here fall of 82 and, you know, all of 83, the fans ate him up. He had a big feud against Morocco. He had a big feud against Piper. That's not a bad choice at all. His partner, Tony Atlas, had his own issues and kind of fell off. But Rocky wrestled till 91. He was really over with the fan base. He looked like a million bucks. Very athletic. You know, not the most electrifying promo, but <laughs> as the as sun would become, but a oh. hell of a better, to me, much more entertaining and a better worker in between the ropes than his, his son ever became, in my opinion. Uh, that, I'm a big Rocky Johnson fan. I think it's, it's hard to compare anyone to Dwayne Johnson. I mean, The Rock was something else. And I, I, I think I've told the story, the story on the show before. I remember seeing him on Saturday Night Live, and I don't want to say it was the beginning of 2000, and that was the first time I ever said it, and I was right. I'm like, this guy is going to be too big for the wrestling business. He's too talented to just be a pro wrestler. He's funny. He can sing, for God's sake, and I was right. He's like the biggest movie star out there. He He's a tremendous. Love the guy. I, I just I would rather watch his dad wrestle, personally. <laughs> uh, that's cool. I, I, was, I was a big fan of his dad, make no mistake. All right, now this is—I like this question, Brian Crawley. What happens if Jimmy Snuka is arrested for the murder of Nancy Argentino? How will this impact wrestling and the WWF? Any thoughts you'd like to share with us, Vincent? I think they just would have pretended like it didn't happen. I mean, it wasn't the information age at the time. I think it kind of ended up being a dark spot in his career anyway. I think that's the reason they stopped pushing him. At the time that they stopped, you know, I mean, he they was didn't. huge in 83. Well, That's sorry? the thing. They didn't stop pushing him. They did not. No, he was. I mean, this happened. I disagree. I mean, he, I mean, think about the famous, the famous match. Wasn't it where, where he, he jumps off the top of the cage against Backland uh, Morocco? Oh, okay. No, you're right. It was Morocco in 83. Uh, uh, Nancy Morocco, Morocco kicks out of that. <laughs> Doesn't he? I uh, know I mean, what that, happened. That should, yeah, go ahead. What happened in, in New York and Boston, I got to see it live in Boston, was Snooka dropkicked Morocco and sent him flying through the cage door. And that was the end of the match. Then Snooka grabs Morocco, beats him up some more, and then jumps off the cage when the match was already over. But you could have made that a clean finish. It, it, it's, it's a subtle little thing to do that I think took away his momentum. 
And I think, you know, it could have, instead of Hulkamania, I mean, it could have been Superfly Mania. I mean, the guy was so, he was so over, so huge. And I think they just kind of did a little subtle, you know, edge him out of the picture. Well, I mean, they, they did once Hogan got here. I mean, but, you know, Snooker was never going to be what Hogan was anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I, I really think that at the end of the day, it really, whatever happened, that's the best way I can put it. I have a pretty good idea what happened. You know, it, it really, it didn't derail his career at all. It was like, it was like it never happened. I never heard about it until I got the Observer. And then it took like a year for me to hear about, you know, wow, Snuka probably killed his girlfriend. But think about this, John. I mean, how many years removed from his career, you know, or from his pomp, you know, Bruno Sammartino was coming back and still kicking everybody's butt. Whereas, you know, Snuka come back and just get stomped by Undertaker at WrestleMania. Snuka, you know. Uh, the real legends never, like, they never quite got jobbed out that hard. No, they didn't. But we're talking, you know, like seven years down the line, and Snooker was was just a name at that point. You're right, Bruno. They never asked Bruno to do it. They never asked Hogan to do it. Um, Paul came back and did the toe-to-toe with Rocky Johnson, you know, that many years later. Yeah, that's... I, yeah, I, used, the, I think it took the wind out of Snooker's sails, and he could have... To me, he gets remembered as more of a legend by people that were around at the time. Um, than, you know, in any of the official literature for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, I was thinking about what you're saying. Like, did they pour cold water on Snooker? I have, ever since it happened, I think that Piper's pit killed Snooker. I mean, Brody just did too much for too long against Snooker <laughs> during that Piper's pit. And you're right. Maybe that was their way of pouring cold water on Snooker. Like, maybe they knew that this was going to derail him. They didn't have to, yeah, they didn't have to play it that way. I mean, he could have just shaken it off and looked at him and, you know, did a Superman comeback. I mean, I talked he, about it on one of the 605 decisive. I mean, what was the his feud against Roddy? I mean, it, he, he actually pinned Roddy, right? He's one of the few people that did. Once in St. Louis, and I think that's before the feud started, but I'm not sure. Exactly. You could have given that narrative differently where he, he comes out the victor in a, you know, in a big stadium show or something. They, yeah. I, I think they definitely did pour cold water on him. I mean, and, and, you know, as a, as a person, as a human being, I understand, but as a, as the character that he was, you know, and the, the business that you could have done still, that's a separate argument to me. I, I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think that it was a coincidence that they, you know, they didn't realize that the Piper's pit was going to, was going to cool Snook off as much as they, as they did. I really think that what happened was the WWF was like, all right, he got away with it. Let's move on. Interesting, yeah. So it, I, but, I think Vince McMahon might have. I mean, he's a sleazy guy as far as from you know, but as far as promoters go, he's he's probably one of the classier ones. I think he probably felt uncomfortable about whatever role he had in <laughs> helping grease the wheels of, ju- of of injustice. All right. Well, I mean, to answer the question, if Snuka had been arrested and theoretically jailed, if he's you know arrested for murder, he's going to sit in jail until the trial happens. I mean, you know, I mean, you would think, pardon the, pardon the pun, but he's a flight risk. I think, <laughs> I, I'm not exaggerating here. I think that this could have worst case scenario. It could have killed the wrestling business. And I'll tell you why. Let's say it, it, the story gets out. It's on the front page of the Boston Globe. You know, wrestler Jimmy Snuka jailed on a murder charge. It's on the, on the pa- front page of the paper in Baltimore, Pittsburgh. New York, obviously, Philadelphia, there might have been. Now, that would be bad enough because Snooker was a huge name. 
So this that could have been enough just to, to kill the WWF, literally kill it. But then you have a reporter somewhere, let's say on ABC News. Hey, let's take a look at this wrestling business. If that spark set off a fire, like the wrestling business was going to be in trouble because it's a business you did not want properly investigated. And if that were to happen as an offshoot of the snooker thing, the whole business is in a lot of trouble. But John, how many exposés happened anyway around that time? And it didn't actually hurt. If anything, it seemed to help the business. And also the WWE at the time, or F at the time, wasn't, they weren't the character as they are now. They were just kind of in the back. They were a facilitator of matches. Right. I think they could have successfully distanced themselves just like they could, you know, be held not accountable when they would do things like report that superstar Billy Graham was dead. Right. I mean, didn't Gorilla Monsoon like report that in his, some article that he would write? Yeah. He was in a, a newspaper in Philadelphia. He had a, a weekly column. And yeah. He incorrectly reported Graham as being dead. But that's the thing. It was like, and he never. He never corrected it either, but that, you know, that they was had a, one. Yeah, they had an Orwellian 1984 control over their audience. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, what if, what if Snooker's arrest got that away from them? What if like, you know, no one cared about wrestling. I mean, you were lucky if you got the results of the matches at the Boston Garden in the paper two days later, but that's the thing. Like, would that, oh my God, this wrestler's a murderer. And um, and then it turns into wow, this is what this business is like. I mean, the the, the scandals in 1991 and 1992 definitely hurt the WWF because once again, it, it got out of their control. That's true. All right. So yeah, I think Snuka, if he had gotten arrested, it it might not have been a giant deal. But worst case scenario, it is a is really bad news. Vincent, what would what question would you like to address next? When did WCW jump the shark? Okay, I can answer this two different ways. We just talked about it uh, the previous show. When the news came out that Dusty was coming back to WCW, like I gave up on it. Emotionally, I was just like, this is never going to be good. The second time, I still watched it. I'm not going to lie about that, but I just, I lost my enthusiasm for it. Like, I, in other words, I wasn't taking a flight to Baltimore to see the Great American Bash anymore. But number two, the second time, I can't pinpoint the date. I should have looked this up, but it was during 1996 or 1997 when every episode of Nitro would end with like seven or eight guys from the NWO beating up one of the baby faces. And one, one time they, they spray painted NWO on Elizabeth's back. And I was like, you know, then they do this every single week and it's got, it's, it was, it was stupid to me. It was just, um, it was the ultimate ego-driven wrestling, except that it was now the heels that were unbeatable. That's a great point, John. It, it jumped the shark, I guess, at the end of every Nitro. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to go, everybody. It was it was just insulting. It was terrible. But, like, you know, to the extent that you were going to turn all of that turd into uh, into gold, you could have done it at Starcade 97. But Nick Patrick gave, gives the slow count, and Sting gets to look like a chump who can't win the big one, you know, against Hulk Hogan. One of the greatest things I've, I've ever heard was, you know, and, I, and not that I like, you know, any podcast that's not wicked good, but <laughs> Conrad Thompson cornered Bischoff in this one podcast. <laughs> he was just, did not let him get off, you know, squirm out of the way, which often happens, right? And you've got the person that's like the wrestling insider. You want to grease the wheels to keep things moving. 
Yeah. Um, and he's just yeah, like, no, like that's insane. He's like, but he showed up, you know, he wasn't tan. I was like, what do you mean he's not tan? Like the fans wanted to see Sting win. Yep. All the crap they've endured for so long. This was supposed to be the comeuppance. And he, and you know, Bischoff those trying to squirm out of Well, you know, I mean I just he was out of shape, he had a little bit of a gut. And you couldn't have identified this a week beforehand. You know, like <laughs> like he just he shows up the night of and now you're gonna now you're gonna just change everything? You idiot. You know, like and he's a million percent right. Not Conrad is yeah, I don't really like his delivery, he's not fun to listen to, but that particular episode was great. There was zero reason for jacking up that finish. It just needed to be a clean pin. Mm-hmm. Who the hell cares whether Sting was tanned or not? This was, you know, he was hanging out in the rafters. He should not, he should have lost his hand. He's gothic <laughs> now. And it, you know, but I got more than for that for jumped up. WCW jumping the shark, hot shotting Hogan Goldberg. You know, you're just going to give that away in a nitro, uh, just for, for a one, you know, week episode boost of, of your nitro rating. That, I mean, that should have been a star cave. A, a great passing the torch moment, the finger poke of doom Nash against uh, Hogan You know, Nash is taking an obvious fall, just thumbing their nose at the audience. Jay Leno with Hulk Hogan in an arm bar. And then finally any Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man main event. Macho Man needed to get one clean win one time against Hogan for all the years of crap. Yeah. I'm going to defend Bischoff a little bit. And that is that, he couldn't make Hulk Hogan do anything Hulk Hogan didn't want to do. That That's just a reality. That, that's just it. I mean, if Hogan wasn't going to get pinned, you know, he doesn't have to. And if, you know, if Bischoff doesn't want to just come out and say that, okay, that's fine. I forget what the other thing was. A very, very small point. But, you know, I, that's the one thing I have to defend Bischoff, Bischoff on. Bischoff should come out and say that. He's, he comes off like, just like, why should I believe anything he says? That's a good point. <laughs> he's so, like, smarmy about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dominic Violi. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. From your reigning and defending fantasy football champion, who do you feel is the most overlooked territory of the 1980s? Do you have one, Vincent? Most overlooked territory of the 1980s. You know, I, I grew up a WWF mark, so I, for for me to have, if I, if I guess if I had contemporary knowledge, I would have been more way more into Mid South. Mid South was awesome. Watts had a very good approach to the business. I mean, he had approach to the business of a person that the average things about the business turned them off. And I think that, 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 that's made some of the best promoters and that's made some of the best bookers and that's made some of the best wrestlers. I was watching a shoot from Paul Orndorff saying, I used to watch it and it all looked fake, you know, and Paul Orndorff is a real life badass. I'm sure he's had his share of street scraps. And when he wrestled, he made it look real. So I think anybody that looks at something with an outside perspective, and I, I think that helps educate them to, to do, you know, learn what you like and learn what you don't like. Right. And yeah, I think mid South really, they presented it as a sport and their angles were believable. The action was hard hitting and, you know, they wanted blood and guts and tough guys. And that's, that's what's entertaining to me about the sport. Okay. That's, that's actually a good answer. Who, who do I feel those most overlooked territory in the eighties? I'm going to be honest here. It feels like I'm supposed to say continental and you know, I don't know if Dominic is coming from that direction or not, but it feels like the, the, the stock answer is continental. And my feeling is the continental, which was really good has gotten enough love over the past five, 10, maybe even 15 years on the internet where that can no longer be said. So with that, I'm going to go with mid South because up until around 83, 84, they virtually got no coverage from the after magazines, despite being one of the best and most successful 
promotions out there, you know, because Junkyard Dog came out of nowhere. The Freebirds came out of nowhere. And so they were using stars that the Aftermag people running them weren't familiar with. And thus they got very little coverage. So early 80s Mid-South is my pick. What's the next question you'd like to discuss, Vincent? If Mr. T drops out of WrestleMania, what happens? Good. That was my next question. And that was a real possibility because I have heard, I heard maybe for the first time, maybe 10 years ago, that Mr. T wanted out the day of the event. He wanted out because Mr. T might have been a tough guy. I mean, he wasn't Paul Orndorff tough. He wasn't Roddy Piper tough. And they had a lot to gain by stretching Mr. T on a national, not a pay-per-view, a closed circuit event. Like, you, can you imagine the news the next day where either Paul Orndorff or uh, Roddy Piper made Mr. T submit in the middle of the ring if they pulled a double cross on him? And yet, yeah, supposedly T, the day of the event, said, I want out. And that, you know, Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff talked him into, you know, no, we're not going to do anything like that. That's not what's best for the business. And T bought it and he showed up. But, um, I mean, if he dropped out, that would have been a major, major blow to the WWF. If we, you know, if we got, got there the day of the Worcester Centrum, uh, we, when we saw it on closed circuit and they said, you know, Mr. T has pulled out of the event, he has chickened out and instead it's going to be Hogan and Junkyard Dog, like, I bet a lot of people would have asked for a refund. I mean, a lot, meaning probably half the people. And the other half yeah, would like, well, we're here anyway. And Mr. T, I mean, so people that weren't there at the time, like, they, they can't understand what a force of nature he was. Like, he was just a huge... I don't even know that we have stars like that anymore. I mean, there used to be... I think it's because, you know, the information age, we have a greater diversity of media, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, like, everyone can just like what they like, see what they see, get into their particular Netflix wormhole at the, you know, but there was, there was 83, everybody loves Sylvester Stallone, right? He was, he was a megastar. Yeah. 84, Mr. T was like lightning in a bottle. Yeah. So I think it would have been devastating. Um, but it, and it's not an unreasonable fear from Mr. T because I think Mr. T was a reasonably tough guy. Uh, I think, you know, not to say that he was just going to get his butt kicked, but he was going to get his butt, <laughs> his butt kicked by, by a Paul Orndorff. I mean, I get the sense that Mr. T, I mean, apparently he had some amateur wrestling background. Like he could probably take care of himself. He was in good shape, but not everybody has a fighting spirit. And Paul Orndorff seemed like he wasn't afraid to to mix it up with anybody at any time. Um, even if he's in his flip flops, I mean, he, 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 you know, flattened Vader in like a couple of seconds and in a backstage incident. And he was, you know, way past his prime. I think it kills Vince McMahon's business for a while. I, I think of Ali Anoki, right? I mean, that was like, it went over uh, like a fart in church. And from what I understand, like New Japan, you know, it took him a long time to get the fans to come back. Yeah, I had heard that as well. I mean, the, the Ali Anoki fight, which I was, I was 11 years old when that took place. And it was not a mainstream event. I mean, it got a, a tiny little, like half a page coverage in Sports Illustrated. And this is Muhammad Ali in 1976 we're talking about here. And everyone just kind of laughed it off. WrestleMania, Mr. T at WrestleMania, to use one of my expressions, you could not get away from it. There was no way you did not know that Mr. T and Hulk Hogan were fighting two of the bad guys at this thing called WrestleMania. It was all over the place. And by the way, I think people got their money's worth. I mean, if you go back and watch that match... And I think Roddy Piper in his book takes credit for this. And I don't know if, I mean, I don't have a reason to doubt that they would have sat down and talked it out and 
he could have pitched the idea where, you know, he said, let's not have Mr. T throwing punches and let's keep it amateur. Uh, it looked good. It, it was, it, you know, it seems like the fans went home happy. I was at the Worcester Centrum and everyone was happy with what they got. And, you know, hey, it wasn't all, you know, 10,000 smart fans. It was just 10,000 run-of-the-mill wrestling fans. And everyone got what they paid for. That What was advertised was what was delivered. All right. It, yeah, hap- it wasn't just a matter of, of getting him in the ring. It was getting him through the match. Yeah. By the way, I love Roddy Piper. He's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. And his book is a work of fiction. There's so much obvious garbage oh, yeah. in there. It was, I mean, this one really stood out as just a work of fiction. Sorry, Roddy. Christian I don't Bode. blame the guy. I mean, I, I think he's, he's had a colorful life. He's had a, a lot of hits in the head <laughs> of different types. So <laughs> I was going to say different types is a good way of putting it. Uh, all right. Christian Body asked, what happens if Ted DiBiase doesn't go to the WWF and instead winds up with JCP in 1987. I mean, my short answer is Ted DiBiase ha- still having a lot of sleepless nights. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, he achieved huge success as the Million Dollar Man in the WWF. He got the gimmick that, according to Pat Patterson, if Vince McMahon were a wrestler, this is the gimmick he would give himself. He became a, a national star. I think if he wound up with JCP... You know what? I don't think they would have used him properly at all. I think he would have gotten like the same kind of push Steve Williams got, which at the end of the day wasn't a very good one. And that's unfortunate. It's probably true. Um, and that was going to be my answer as well, that he was going to go as far as you let him. He had all the tools. He was well-seasoned. He was in his prime. He's top flight at absolutely everything. he did. When I go back and watch him, I'm just like, man, this is a guy that could carry the ball. Yeah. He looks so comfortable in the ring, cool, calm, collected, comfortable on the microphone. And yeah, he, he took a gimmick that was such a cartoon gimmick and he made it work like nobody else possibly could. I and agree with it, that. It, you know, yeah, I think his, his, his ceiling was pretty much the million dollar man. And what's amazing about Ted DiBiase too, his physique, you know, he didn't look like a, a bodybuilder, but when he stood next to one, he didn't look like he had anything to be ashamed of either. I mean, he, no. he had size. He was quick. He never seemed like he was out of breath. He was a tough dude. There's a great match he has that it's on one of those. I'm not sure if it's in Coliseum. It's not widely publicized where he has this match against Macho Man. Macho Man's the champion. Macho Man starts the match and he does basically a Superman punch. He comes out of the corner, just, you know, Macho Man, he's crazy. He seems to just punch him flush in the face, apparently breaks his nose or something. And Ted DiBiase just rolls out of the ring and there's just blood gushing all over the floor. And Ted DiBiase gets back in there and they have a 30 minute, you know, four and a half star match. I don't think I've ever seen that match. Wow. I, I believe it because of the ones that I have seen, like the Madison Square Garden matches, the Boston Garden matches between DiBiase and Savage are all right around four stars, sometimes four and a half stars. They were really good together. I think it's on a tape I bought from you actually back in, I think you, didn't you saw tapes years ago and before, yeah. I think before we met, I, I could have like just a, forgotten like a, about it. <laughs> Yeah, I bought like a seven tape, like, you know, basically Macho Man's entire career compilation and watched it all. You know, I remember making that compilation. I I really do remember it. And it was, you know, the best of Randy Savage. And I I was just like, it was funny. I had forgotten how good he was. Or no, let me rephrase. I had forgotten how great he was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I always got to bring up Brandon Rice and and Brandon is not exaggerating. I mean, there's an argument for Macho Man to be greatest of all time because he had all the tools. 
incredible charisma, an incredible talker, an incredible worker. And, and he went in and kept that work rate in an area that, you know, would work you to, the, to death. You know, I was just talking with someone maybe a week ago about the scenario where, and this is true, Ted DiBiase was supposed to win the WWF title at WrestleMania four, and they had to change the booking. And I was like, you know, and they, then they were going, going to put Ted on the road, defending the title against Savage. And, you know, as much of a fan as I was of Ted DiBiase, you know, Macho Man is the guy who carries this. He's the, the baby face. He's the draw. And Ted DiBiase, is, he's kind of more the co-star than anything. Yeah, as great as DiBiase was, I mean, Macho Man's in another echelon. And I have to think back to, you know, Dynamite Kid said something in his book that I think kind of rings true that Ted DiBiase for a heel didn't have like the nasty streak that you want to see in a heel where Macho Man always, you know, he just cracked you just because Macho Man definitely had that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, Randy Savage was special and the idea that he was hidden in, in Lexington, Kentucky for as long as he was. It's just kind of sad, but he came back from it. Everyone knows who Randy Savage is. Before the we rise to the top. Yeah, yeah, to say the least. <laughs> and, and to think that, you know, in the middle of a wrestling war, any promoter could have had this guy, and he just winds up like falling into Vince McMahon's lap. It's unreal. Yeah. All right, before we wrap this up, and I apologize to everyone who didn't get their question answered, I might bring this exact mailbag back in a month or so. Wanted to touch upon something Frank Conan said. He goes, your thoughts on Bill Simmons as a Boston sports fan and a fringe wrestling analyst. About 20 years ago, before Bill became a huge star, when he was just, you know, a smaller scale guy, someone wrote to me and said, hey, seriously, I won't tell anyone. Is this you? <laughs> I had to tell him, no, I, I'm familiar with Bill Simmons, but it's definitely not me. That's how much I resembled Bill Simmons 20 years ago. And finally, I want to get your thoughts on this. A non-wrestling question from the guest from the, from the past two weeks, Jace Nakarado. What's the most egregious topping or condiment ever to go on a pizza? Don't say mayo because it's fantastic. Don't knock it until you try it. Have me on in a segment defending it. Vincent, what is the most egregious topping or condiment ever to go on a pizza? Pineapple. I, you know, I'm, I'm a Chicagoan, born and bred. It just offends my sensibilities. Uh, I very much believe in uh, Chicago pizza as the best, and I'm, I'm very much just a you know cheese sausage, sometimes pepperoni, sometimes green peppers. You know, just just have good ingredients. Okay, yeah, I, I actually love Chicago pizza myself. The most egregious topping or condiment, believe it or not. I'm going to say pepperoni because I don't like pepperoni and it's the most common condiment to put on a pizza. So that's my question. Mayonnaise is don't say mayo because it's fantastic. Jace, I hate mayonnaise. I hate it. I, I mean, I will use a tiny little bit of mayonnaise if I'm making a homemade tuna sandwich, but otherwise keep the mayo away from everything. I hate mayo more than anything in the world. Don't put it on my sandwich. I would rather have. No, I agree a capital insurrectionist on my sandwich than mayo. I'd rather have mayo Buck like Zumhoff like on an my hour sandwich. And a half. What's that? <laughs> Buck Zumhoff. Yeah, mayo also just seems like it curdles pretty fast. Uh, but but I think, you know, pepperoni, when it's bad, it's really bad. It, it's sitting there with a well of grease sitting there. I, I get it, you know, but some good Chicago pepperoni, it's a different story. 
All right, I'll have to check that out at some point. Vincent, thank you for taking the time to being on Stick to Wrestling. It has been a wicked good podcast. My pleasure. Love the show. I've heard them all, except the very last one about Terry Funk. I'm about to listen to that shortly. Okay. And I want to thank our fabulous producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he has done for the show. I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.